Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, May 3rd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Average human life expectancy doubled in the last century. Has it reached its cap or can we double it again? Some considerations. And NASA conducted a tabletop simulation of an asteroid impact last week with less than ideal results. But don't worry, I've got you covered with tips on how to survive a killer asteroid. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So last week, the New York Times ran a series about the human lifespan. The crux of the argument was that technically we doubled the average human lifespan over the last century. So could we do it again? Part of why we doubled it is because almost exactly 100 years ago, the 1918 flu epidemic caused life expectancies to drop quite a bit, from 54 down to 47 in the U.S., and from 54 down to 41 in the U.K. After the First World War and the pandemic, outlook was understandably grim for the coming years. But remarkably, fortunes reversed, and over the next several decades, average life expectancy just kept on climbing. But now, especially as we round the corner on another pandemic, the question has arisen. Have we topped out? Have we reached the summit of human potential in terms of age? Or could it jump again? Experts understandably disagree, and not just about whether we can live to an even longer age, but if we should. There's the possibility that extending life would only extend those years in which one is most frail, which is a whole debate, but putting that aside for a moment, or imagining that this would mean simply that we aged slower and all periods of life were longer and we were generally healthier, that still doesn't necessarily equate to a net positive for society. Quoting the New York Times, Perhaps the most common concern is the potential for overpopulation, especially considering humanity's long history of hoarding and squandering resources and the tremendous socioeconomic inequalities that already divide a world of nearly 8 billion. There are still dozens of countries where life expectancy is below 65, primarily because of problems like poverty, famine, limited education, disempowerment of women, poor public health, and diseases like malaria and HIV-AIDS, which novel and expensive life-extending treatments will do nothing to solve. Lingering multitudes of super seniors, some experts add, would stifle new generations and impede social progress. There's a wisdom to the evolutionary process of letting the older generation disappear, said Paul Root Wolp, the director of the Center for Ethics at Emory University, during one public debate on life extension. If the World War I generation and World War II generation and perhaps, you know, the Civil War generation were still alive, do you really think that we would have civil rights in this country? Gay marriage? End quote. 
There's also the idea sometimes explored in sci-fi of what a substantially longer lifespan would do to our psyches. Even though average life expectancies have gotten significantly longer in the last couple of centuries, they're still finite and within the same imaginable scope that they have been for centuries. If it suddenly doubled or increased exponentially, how would that affect, as the New York Times phrases it, our neural architecture? Would it render much of life meaningless, leaving us melancholic? Would a longer life really solve anything or just make it worse in a way? But putting aside the philosophical and sociological questions, could such a thing actually be possible? Some longevity scientists wholeheartedly believe it is, to some extent. David Sinclair, a director of the Paul G. Glenn Center for the Biology of Aging Research at Harvard Medical School, said, quote, "...aging is far more reversible than we thought." Cells can clean themselves up, they can get rid of old proteins, they can rejuvenate if you turn on the youthful genes through this reset process, end quote. He and his colleagues partially restored vision in middle-aged mice by reprogramming their gene expression. Others are working on experiments in rodents that would remove the molecules that inhibit healing, therefore stimulating cellular regeneration. And still others have successfully granted mice an extra month of healthy living by injecting them with drugs that get rid of the cells responsible for aging. And this last experiment, led by James Kirkland at the Mayo Clinic, has already inspired related human trials. But getting the same results across species is complicated. For example, researchers have been able to extend the life of roundworms 10 times by editing their genome, which would be like a human living for a thousand years. But when they've tried to apply the same methods, and other ones, in complex species like fish, rodents, and monkeys, they haven't been able to achieve anywhere near the same results. Nonetheless, many of these scientists defend the work as more than just an idle fantasy of relative immortality. To achieve a longer lifespan, most argue, would require incredible biomedical breakthroughs and a significant increase in the vitality one experiences in later years. So regardless of their outcomes on lifespan technically, their work is valuable toward furthering quality of life generally. But others like S.J. Olshansky, a professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago and an expert on longevity, believe there is a cap on the human lifespan. It's just a biological reality. He told the New York Times, quote, Could someone run a two-minute mile? No, the human body is incapable of moving that fast based on anatomical limitations. The same thing applies to human longevity, end quote. But could we increase it a bit? Could so-called supercentenarians, those who live past 110, become more common? The New York Times created an interactive timeline of innovations that could be required for that to happen. Or specifically, they laid out a roadmap to get us to 200 as an average life expectancy within the next 100 years. It includes things it says would be possible within 0 to 5 years, like sequencing the genomes of supercentenarians to learn more about how they live so long. Maintaining widespread mask wearing during flu season, solving the racial disparity in maternal mortality, investing in promising treatment for Alzheimer's, utilizing mRNA technology for certain forms of cancers, and introducing various drugs that could boost fitness or restore function to weakened mitochondria. As the roadmap progresses to the 5-10 to 10 year timeline and eventually into the 50-100 to 100 year timeline, it gets increasingly sci-fi-esque, with a few suggestions that could arguably get uncomfortably close to eugenics. 
Some highlights, however, include requiring breathalyzers built into all new cars, something that's apparently already in a bill in the U.S. Congress. Meeting the UN's goal of ending childhood malnutrition by 2030 and their other goal of ensuring all children complete primary and secondary school by that time. Investing in midwives, ending tuberculosis, finding a cure for HIV and eventually eradicating malaria, diversifying clinical trials, and much further down the line, putting nanoscale robots in our bodies to detect and deliver targeted drugs to various ailments, and doing a whole bunch with rejuvenating cells and growing organs in labs. That later stuff aside, a lot of these proposals, many of which are already underway, may sound simple, at least in name, or even unrelated to lifespan. But Stephen Johnson pointed out in his contribution to this Times series that it's a lot of that little stuff that really made the difference when we doubled the average human life expectancy in the 20th century. It was work from activists pushing for equitable treatment of all people that pushed up our life expectancy, not just scientific innovations in a vacuum. I'll leave you with his words, quote, How did this great doubling of the human lifespan happen? When the history books do touch on the subject of improving health, they often nod to three critical breakthroughs, all of them presented as triumphs of the scientific method, vaccines, germ theory, and antibiotics. But the real story is far more complicated. Those breakthroughs might have been initiated by scientists, but it took the work of activists and public intellectuals and legal reformers to bring their benefits to everyday people. From this perspective, the doubling of human lifespan is an achievement that is closer to something like universal suffrage or the abolition of slavery. Progress that required new social movements, new forms of persuasion, and new kinds of public institutions to take root. And it required lifestyle changes that ran throughout all echelons of society. Washing hands, quitting smoking, getting vaccinated, wearing masks during a pandemic. It's not always easy to perceive the cumulative impact of all that work, all that cultural transformation. The end result is not one of those visible icons of modernity. A skyscraper, a moon landing, a fighter jet, a smartphone. Instead, it manifests in countless achievements, often quickly forgotten, sometimes literally invisible. The drinking water that's free of microorganisms, or the vaccine received in early childhood and never thought about again. The fact that these achievements are so myriad and subtle, and thus underrepresented in the stories we tell ourselves about modern progress, should not be an excuse to keep our focus on the astronauts and fighter pilots. Instead, it should inspire us to correct our vision. End quote. Last week, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory's Center for Near-Earth Object Studies hosted a doomsday simulation in which scientists from NASA and the European Space Agency had to try to save the Earth from an asteroid that was 35 million miles away and could hit our planet within six months. And my friends... They couldn't stop it. Quoting Science Alert, The group determined that none of Earth's existing technologies could stop the hypothetical asteroid from striking given the six-month time frame of the simulation. In this alternate reality, the asteroid crashed into Eastern Europe. End quote. Now, hopefully we would have more than six months lead time were an asteroid that big to be coming our way, and to be clear... There are no asteroids we know of that are currently on their way to Earth, none large enough to be concerned about anyways. 
But Science Alert helpfully reminds us, quote, an estimated two-thirds of asteroids 140.21 meters in size or bigger, large enough to wreak considerable havoc, remain undiscovered. And that's why NASA and other agencies are attempting to prepare for such a situation, end quote. And while NASA has their myriad ways of preparing, like their upcoming Fall 2022 Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, which will see how effective it would be to send up a spacecraft to bump the asteroid off its course and away from Earth, Wired conveniently published a guide early last month outlining how we can best survive a killer asteroid should it ever happen. And again, to be absolutely clear, the one that NASA could not prevent was just a simulation. There is no need to actually be concerned about asteroids right now. But as a thought experiment, here are some tips on surviving a killer asteroid. Now, Wired used the Chicxulub asteroid that destroyed the dinosaurs and most land mammals, not the asteroid used in NASA's recent simulation, as an example. But I think the advice, as hypothetical as it is, still stands. So the first improbable task of many is making sure that you're on the other side of the world when this happens. Back in the Cretaceous period, that would have been all but impossible, but these days we would hopefully have enough advance warning for people to clear out. In fact, in the simulation, that ended up being about all they could do, evacuate all of Eastern Europe and save lives even if they couldn't prevent the asteroid from hitting. But even if you're on the other side of the world before impact, there are still further precautions you'd need to take, namely getting to high ground and finding underground shelter when you're there. High ground because when the asteroid hits, quote, waves in the Earth's crust radiate away from the impact zone at 2.5 miles per second. These waves then trigger fault-slipping earthquakes across the continents. If you're on the other side of the world, you can expect to feel the ground-shaking effects 30 minutes after impact. Stay away from the banks of any large body of water, where earthquakes may trigger tsunami-like siege waves even in fjords and lakes. And even more importantly, stay off the beach. The impact triggers tsunamis, plural, as high as skyscrapers. The first of them hit Gulf coastlines within the hour. Tsunamis wrap up the eastern seaboard, smash into the eastern coast of the United States, and six hours after impact, crest as 600-foot-high walls of water in Europe, Africa, and the Mediterranean coasts. Within 15 hours of impact, waves arrive on every coastline on the planet. Depending on local topography, the ocean sweeps away anything in its path and sucks it back to the sea when the waters finally retreat. End quote. Needing to be so far inland and on high ground is tough because being near water would otherwise be a decent strategy since it can act as an insulator from the massive temperature swings that will be coming. And then there's the 25 trillion tons of Earth that the asteroid pelts up and out of the planet's gravitational pull, most of which comes back down within the hour on fire, ranging in size from marbles to school buses, and at speeds of 100 to 200 miles per hour. That's why finding some kind of underground protection or a cave would really help. But it's not just getting hit by this debris directly that you need to be wary of. The friction created when they fall emits enough thermal radiation to set fires all over the world. Pretty much the only animals that survived are the ones that could burrow or wait it out underwater. 
But the heat won't last long, because when Chicxulub vaporizes, it lets out 150 football stadiums worth of oil, which condenses in the stratosphere and reduces the amount of sunlight that can reach the Earth by 90% for three years. So at that point, you'd want to go somewhere like Madagascar, India, or Indonesia, which scientists believe were the only places that avoided frost, still had fresh water, and would have had plants and animals that you could eat. But they weren't like they are today. They barely escape the desertification that happens elsewhere around the globe and only get 10% of the sunlight they do today. While there's a chance of survival there, it's still slim. If you have time to prepare before traveling to the opposite side of the world from where the asteroid is expected to hit, Charles Bardeen, a climate scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research who advised Wired on this preparedness guide, advises bringing something to keep you warm and six years of food supply. So that's your packing list, preppers. In the meantime, NASA will continue running both these tabletop simulation drills as well as tests like DART to make sure none of us ever have to seriously consider this scenario. So on the topic of humans living hundreds upon hundreds of years, I want to throw out a quick book recommendation, the novel How to Stop Time by Matt Haig. It's about people with a rare genetic condition that enables them to live for hundreds of years. It mostly follows a man named Tom Hazard, who was born in the Elizabethan era and has traveled the world since then, taking on new identities every few years as he tries to adhere to the regulations of the Albatross Society, a group that that protects others like him. It's honestly one of my favorite books that I've read this year, maybe for quite a while, and Matt Haig is a remarkable, award-winning writer, so I definitely suggest you check it out. How to Stop Time by Matt Haig. Also, Max Hodak, the co-founder of Elon Musk's Neuralink, announced over the weekend that he left the company a few weeks ago. For those who follow Neuralink and other brain-machine interface developments closely, it's definitely caused a bit of a curious stir, but I only bring it up because Max Hodak is the one who casually tweeted last month, quote, We could probably build Jurassic Park if we wanted to, end quote. So all I'm saying is, we better keep an eye on him in case dude left so that he could start Jurassic Park. You know, just in case I didn't put enough existential dread into you throughout the rest of this episode. But anyways, that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.